Hey everybody, Jeremy here. You're about to listen to an interview that I performed solo because Ken is busy. This is an interview that I had with Dr. Paul Henneberry, also known as Dr. Reluctant Online. We talk about that in the interview, but this is the first chunk of the interview, a little over half, and here soon you'll get part two. This is one of those interviews you probably won't be able to listen to at two times speed or whatever. I would suggest putting it down to like normal to 1.3 speed range. That's probably going to be the best for you because we swim in some some deep waters and there are probably terms here and there that you'll need to pause and maybe look up. So, yeah. It it should be it should be helpful for you. I really really enjoyed the conversation. Want to let you know before we get into it though, this episode is brought to you by West Eden. Go to westeden.co and check out the Christian apparel that they have on their website. All kinds of stuff from tote bags to keychains, shirts, hoodies, all sorts of stuff. They do a really good job over there at West Eden and you can get 15% off with coupon code do theology 15 that's do theology one word 15 tacked onto the end all lowercase do theology 15 for 15 percent off the total purchase okay westeden.co not dot com dot co thanks for sponsoring today's episode here after the music you will be jumping right into my conversation with dr reluctant stay tuned Neither Bethel nor Hillsong meet the biblical definition of a true church. Did you know that Jesus was born again? Is his view heretical? If it isn't, then there's no such thing as heresy. It's not just a black and white issue. There's an issue, there's a question of moderation and how damaging and how harmful things are. Not every act of divine revelation is equal in authority. Angelic forces, angelic reinforcement. I mean, it's, it's hard to even respond to that, isn't it? It's mind-numbing, it's blasphemous. When the apostles use the word atonement, they do not depict an angry God. It's cryptic, it's watered down, it has nothing to do with the judicial aspect of the Christian gospel. The most important of all doctrines is that the Bible is the word of God. They have different ideas than you do. You don't have to automatically kick them out of the kingdom. All right, welcome back to Do Theology. I am joined today with Dr. Paul Henneberry, and we have a lot to discuss, lots of big major theology to discuss. But um, before we get into the conversation today, there are going to be several people who are listening that I'm sure aren't familiar with you and your ministry. So how about you just tell us who you are, where you live, what you do, all that sort of biographical information. Okay, Um, let me see. I was born in Manchester, England. I came over to the States um, in 1996 to be uh, a pastor in uh, Northern California. Did that for a while, planted a church in Napa, then uh, headed off to Texas to um, do more seminary and um, pastor down there too, and then moved back to Northern California Ukiah area, if anyone knows where that is, beginning of the Redwoods, um, about nine years ago. I also run a ministry called uh, Telos Theological Ministries with a little, a little school that I, I sometimes dabble with. I don't have a lot of time because I'm a full-time pastor, uh, also a father of five. 
And uh, I think that's about it. That's about as interesting as I am. And you're married? I'm married to Gina, and uh, we have uh, five children. The oldest is 21. The youngest is five. Okay. From Manchester. Yes. (laughs) Is your wife from there, too? No, she's from uh, California. Oh, okay. So I met her when I was uh, pastoring in uh, the Fairfield area. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show today with your accent to make us sound <laughs> much more intelligent. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, whether we are remains to be seen, but we at That's least right. we sound good. And yeah, so Telos Ministries it has a YouTube presence. I noticed that there are several classes that it appears that are viewable on YouTube. Yes. Um, so uh, I don't even know what the link is. Let me see. But it I'm is so Telos, T E L O S from yes, the Greek. Yes, as in uh, the Greek word basically for goal, you know, completion, a purpose, that general idea. So uh, let me find the YouTube channel. What is it? Hmm. Well, if you put Telos Ministries or put my name in to YouTube, you'll find it. Yeah, it's right there. Telos Ministries. And you're teaching through one or two courses at the moment, it seems. I've actually, these are older ones. Uh, Since COVID, I haven't done anything. And we're trying to get back on uh, track with this. Um, Unfortunately, I've lost my cameraman. Uh, okay. I, I'm not a techie person. <laughs> my cameraman had to take a full-time job and oh, he had to take a different job uh, to support himself pre-COVID. So um, yeah, I'm, I've got a camera, I've got a microphone. I just need a brain to be able to put the two together and start doing some more cool. courses. But there's a, quite a few uh, quite a few courses that uh, are to add, yes. Okay. And apart from Telos, you are a prolific writer. Seems like you keep up with your writing quite a bit on the Doctor Reluctant blog. Yes. Uh, tell us a little bit about why the name Doctor Reluctant <laughs> and what you explore over there. Um, I'm just going to pour my tea here. Um, excuse me, everybody. <laughs> a true Englishman. It's that time of day. Um. <laughs> So, yeah, I was, I really didn't want to start a blog. This was quite a long time ago now. And uh, I had a, a friend and then my wife saying, well, you know, you should, you should blog. It's the thing to do. It's the latest thing. And I wasn't interested, but they, they started one off for me and they called it the reluctant dispensationalist uh, for reasons that, you know, you can ask about, but uh, I shortened that after a while to Dr. Reluctant. Um, I'm not, you know, it's a bit of a silly name, but it's because I'm, uh, first of all, I'm a reluctant dispensationalist in the sense that I don't like the populism that goes with dispensationalism. Mm-hmm. I don't like, I, I think there's a lot of, without wanting to uh, say anything against a lot of good men that I admire, I think there's a myopia that there is in dispensationalism. We can talk about that. And then I'm also reluctant because I'm just not a very, uh, I think I'm a friendly person. I think I'm, you know, um, I like people generally, but I'm not 
uh, an outgoing kind of a guy. Mm. I don't like self-publicity or any of that stuff. So I, I think that was the combination. There. The reluctancy uh, has layers. It does. Yes, I'm, a, I'm an onion with lots of layers. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, I've been reading a lot of your articles uh, the last couple of days to prepare for this interview. Uh, you're currently going through a series titled Deciphering Covenant Theology. You just released yeah. part 10 yesterday. Right as I finished reading part nine, I got onto Twitter and saw that you shared part 10. And so I had to print that off and jump back into it. It's been a, a fascinating study there as you've approached that subject. Uh, you're clearly, if you're identifying more with the dispensationalist side of things, you're clearly not a proclaimed covenant theologian. And so you're not examining it from uh, within as one of its adherents, obviously. Right. Uh, but it, that's been a good study. Uh, though at the same time, you don't uh, necessarily prescribe to dispensationalism as a label you you have your own label and <laughs> you've said it's not that elegant but uh no. it is the label biblical covenantalism yes. so you you have now developed something a little bit different which i would like to explore for this episode but i want to start off with the question why not just pick a traditional form of doctrine or a particular confession and adhere to that why are why are you even endeavoring to go mm -hmm. into something new um, if I start, if I start, uh, rabbiting on, please cut me off. Um, <laughs> okay. It's a fairly, it's an e easy question to ask and not as easy to answer. But if I can try with a fairly, um, short response, I think it's because, uh, I started off in reformed churches in England, reformed Baptist churches. I went to a reformed seminary in England. Um, I have a, a lot of regard for Reformed theologians and Reformed theology and Puritans. Um, you know, before we got went into London Theological Seminary, one of the requirements was that you read Calvin's Institutes. And so I have a lot of respect and regard for these people. Of course, you know, we have a great uh, history. Um, in England of, of reformed writing. Yeah. So um, there's that. So I got very familiar with that, but there were things that I wasn't, uh, I wasn't seeing in reformed statements or reformed preaching that I saw in the Bible. Hmm. Um, then I met some people in England who were more influenced by the Dallas seminary approach and uh, is that where you went to seminary by the way you mentioned going to texas for seminary and i uh, or for i didn't school. go to dallas no i went to I, I deliberately didn't go to dallas actually which is maybe probably again part of my personality you know dr martin lloyd jones um who well let me let me rewind the tape here i went to london theological seminary the the library of dr lloyd jones is there at the London Theological Seminary. And I was a student librarian for Dr. Lloyd-Jones's wow. library. And I also knew a lot of people there who knew him personally very well. He wasn't, he'd passed away by the time I got there a few, a few years later. But um, he, he said that you don't treat theology like a subject. It's in an article at the end of his book, Knowing the Times. Mm. And... Um, that's always stuck with me, you know, that 
it's I'm not judging anybody else, but for me, I don't go for the piece of paper. So I wasn't interested in accreditation. That therefore I didn't go to Dallas and spend a lot of money doing that. I went to Tyndale Theological Seminary, who had the same teachers, basically. In fact, the old guard uh, of Dallas were basically teaching at Tyndale. Like uh Pentecost, Walford, Ryrie, that type of old guard? Uh, Ryrie was there, did some work there. Uh, Leitner was oh. doing work there. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, some other people like Fruchtenbaum and Ice oh. uh, were teaching there too. So and then Dr. Couch was the president. So uh, I chose to go there because I wanted a particular form of, of uh, curriculum. I wanted to be able to do uh, you know, certain avenues of study that I thought would be available to me with, in that uh, viewpoint rather than uh, Dallas at that time, they were kind of going through a transitional phase. And I wasn't really, I didn't really feel that that was what I wanted to be involved with. So I went to Tyndale and continued studying there and got my uh, master's and PhD there. Okay. Well, I derailed you. You were speaking of uh, being introduced to dispensational thought while uh, amid reformed thinking in England. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you can derail me anytime here. I mean, that's fine. Okay. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I met some people who, you know, I was just talking to people basically in this reformed Baptist church or Grace Baptist church that I was in. And I would say, well, there doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say that, mm. you know, particularly in the Old Testament prophets. And I was reading the Bible through four times a year at that time. So I was getting more and more familiar with that. And then uh, I was reading Matthew Henry, of course, very great man. But I, I wasn't what he was saying and what I saw in the prophets just didn't add up to me. And we're so talking trying, particularly about issues related to Israel? or Yeah, yeah, Israel and just uh, the way that, that God was speaking so adamantly. Um, and my, you know, my, perhaps in my naivety, my understanding of communication and what it's for, it just didn't make any sense to me. So I, I just wanted questions answered, and I found some people who um, – were quite local actually who lent me books mm-hmm. and they will read this and tell me what you think of it and so on so i got lent books like explore the book by sidlow baxter um things to come by pentecost uh some books by walvard and um, i can't remember all of them, eric sauer's books and so on and they seem to make a lot more sense to me because they bound the old testament and the new testament together as a continuing narrative with as it were different uh different offshoots different things coming off them you see but still one plan and that was very attractive uh, to me so i started to read the bible like that um and uh, i've been reading it that way ever since although always uh, most of the people that I've ever, ever read have been Reformed, covenant theologians of one stripe or another. Well, you know the Reformed theologian who listens to you say such a thing says, wait a second, uh, 
dispensationalism, that's the theology of discontinuity. What, what do you mean you found continuity in dispensationalism there? Uh, as you know, you talked about as in your articles, deciphering co- covenant theology, they say God has one people and he's one mm-hmm. plan and one purpose for his one people. It's continuous and dispensationalism yes. introduces this idea of separation between Israel and the church. That's and right. This whole church is a parenthesis. And then we're going to refocus again later on the nation of Israel. What would you say to that common retort? I would say that they got to the term first. Um, so they're using it the way that they want to use it, which is fine. I mean, it's good for them to do that. But by just by continuity, they mean what you just said there, that there is one people of God, one overarching covenant of grace. And therefore, the Bible is one kind of uh, amalgus uh, piece of literature that describes one entity or you know, two entities lost and saved. Mm. Uh, I'm talking about hermeneutical continuity. And when it comes to hermeneutics, uh, the interpretation of the Bible, then um, covenant theology, our millennialism, post-millennialism, um, even covenant premillennialism, we can go into those terms if you want. Um, there's a lot of hermeneutical discontinuity, uh, particularly between the words that God uses and the way that they are, uh, I think the right word is reinterpreted by those systems. And mm. that I've never really, uh, I, I've tried, I've tried to hold to it. I've tried to understand it. I've tried to dig and dig and dig to see what I'm missing here. But uh, it always comes up, but, but God didn't say that. Mm. You see, where are the words that God said that allows me to say that's what God means? Well, and that's always my uh, Hermeneutics is certainly where the conversation must begin. That is the uh, yeah. that's the uh, continental divide, you could say, depending on where you land on hermeneutics, that will determine your theological system on this subject, at least. And the first lesson in, at least in the, the telos course that's on YouTube, the first lesson in biblical, biblical covenantalism is God means what he says. Yes. And you put a lot of emphasis on the unity and our understanding of God's thoughts, words, and actions in deriving our hermeneutic from scripture itself. So maybe we could start there and you could share some thoughts on that. Yeah, this has to do with my focus on creation. Um, there is an inescapable triad that we're involved in, God, man, and the world, us being, of course, the middle part of that triad. And you can't really talk about yourself without referencing, in some sense, um, those other two. Certainly you can't theologically. So uh, the thing is that, that that's not just a construct. That's actually the reality that we live in. Mm which means that it's a, it's a purposed and created reality and the language and our understanding of and description of the world around us and God um, are all predicated on the language that God has given us. So, you know, what I've tried to do is I've tried to understand what God is like as a communicator and what his intentions are in 
communicating to us, not just verbally, but uh, us to verbalize the world, our understanding of the world back to him. And if there is uh, any, any kind of an equivocation between the two things, or if they are univocal, if they're, if they're the same, in other words, God means what he says when he talks to Adam and when he talks to us, and we're to mean what we say in response to what he says to us, or at least our understanding of it, you know, because we don't have full comprehension of everything because of our limitations. So um, I just investigated some simple rubrics, as it were, that are found in the foundational chapters of the Bible, which, of course, are far more profound than they seem. And uh, if you notice in Genesis, uh, well, one, two, three, but particularly in Genesis one, which is the only real creation chapter that we have, um, God says that he wants something. He even sometimes you have him uh, talking to himself as in before the creation mm -hmm. of man. So you have a description of his thinking mm -hmm. and then let us do this and then, he does it. He does exactly what he says he's going to do. So you don't take the uh, Michael Heiser view that he had a council of the gods that he was conferring with, and when he said, let us make man in our image, he was talking to a, a variety of, of other gods then, huh? No, that's to me, that is utterly ridiculous. Amen. And um, I know I know that Heiser goes to Daniel and goes to other places to, to confirm that. The problem is it he tries to say too much about what the texts are saying, you know. Yeah. Now, the only a whole thing, new worldview. Yeah, I mean, the thing is that in Genesis 1, it's creation, isn't it? Yeah. And the, the angels are not part of the us that are doing the creating. Amen. So Amen. They, uh, they, can't, they can't be a counsel. Why would, God, why would God counsel with a bunch of his own creations? He'd have to create them first. <laughs> And then say to his creations, okay, let's create this. That doesn't make any sense to me. So I don't, I, no, I reject that. Good. Me too. Uh, I know a lot of people hold to it, but uh, that's because they read ancient Near Eastern, uh, yes. you know, ideas of cosmogony into the Genesis chapters. I don't mm. think it's there. I derailed you again. I'm sorry. You did. <laughs> Yeah, what was I talking about? Um, yeah, so this this idea of God God's words uh, correlate with the uh, no God's actions correlate with His words, which correlate with His thoughts. You see, actually, everywhere in the Bible, you see it. For example, in the, the healing of Naaman, although of course Elisha is used as God's spokesman using God's words, but it's, it's God. You see it. Um, in uh, the Gospels and Jesus' uh, predictions of his treatment, maltreatment, and his death and his resurrection. And then the angels, you know, even saying, Well, didn't he tell you that he was going to go into Galilee after his passion? Which is exactly what he did say to him. So this, this happens all the time in the Bible where um, we are told what God is going to do. In fact, this is really what prophecy is. Um, God says he's going to do something, and he does it. Now, there are some areas where God relents, particularly when he has, it comes to judgment, 
he says he's going to do this, particularly, you know, when one thinks of Ahab, for example, and the prophecy about that, uh, that, that uh, you know, he's going to, uh, the dogs are going to lick his blood in Nahab's um, uh, garden. That doesn't happen. The dogs do lick his blood, but somewhere else. And that's because we read that Ahab repented at the word. So therefore, you know, God in his grace changed the outcome somewhat. But generally speaking, and especially in more universal contexts, that doesn't happen. Yeah, this, the Jeremiah 18 principle of the potter and the clay, uh, or as we see with uh, the Ninevites, a nation that he says he's going to strike down. If they repent, he will relent of the disaster yeah. he swore he'd bring upon them. Yeah, precisely. Yes. Yes. Because, of course, there's more to God than his, um, his sovereign decree. You know, we, what, what uh, a lot of people do is that they, um, elevate a certain attribute of God, if that can even be called an attribute, uh, rather than the function of the attributes. Mm-hmm. And they don't, um, they don't take into account the creation that God has made and <clears throat> the way that God interacts and relates with the creation that he's made. Well, that's so when it comes the, to, yeah. Well, that's just one of the most beautiful aspects of the biblical God it's it's something that's totally unique to him in that he is both transcendent and imminent that his transcendence does not gobble up his imminence or vice versa but that he is able to hold those two attributes in perfect accord and no other lowercase g so-called god can do such a thing yes it's unique to god um and it's it's the most important thing to keep in balance as well because as well as solving the god and time issues Right. Um, it also uh, speaks to how God can actually relate in a uh, a willful way with with ignorant and faulty mm-hmm. beings, or even in eternity, with um, from uh, you know always from His perspective from people that that know less than they will know Mm. and um, who are limited by the fact that they are created to be what God has made them to be and are far below God, even in their most glorious uh, appearances. Mm. So uh, what this means is that, that God is never standing aloof he is he is apart from his creation because he's always greater than his creation but he's not defined by his creation yet when he does act within creation then creation of course does in some senses define the way that he's going to act why because his it's his own nature it's his own character it's his own work and purpose that is in creation and he's going to work in accord with the purposes and the wisdom that uh, he has put into it Mm -hmm. it's like you know anyone designing anything you know you're not you're not going to design a motor that runs on gas and then put diesel in it 
I mean, you can, but you're not going to because you're, you're constricted in a sense by the thing that you've created, the thing that you've made. And so we've got to keep those things in, uh, you know, in, in balance. When God's dealing with finite people and when he's dealing with people with a power of self-determination, however one defines that, there certainly is, otherwise Paul's epistles don't make any sense, then um, God must be one who actually responds, not pretends to yes. respond. Yes. Yeah, uh, uh, John uh, Frame uh, is really good on that point. In yes, uh, he is. Doctrine yeah, of God. He, yes. he is. He is not a God who um, is just pretends to be within time, but he is actually found within time. Though he also, at the same time, transcends time. Yes. Which, uh, when we have, when we hold to those two ideals we can make sense of a lot of things in scripture. And as we see that God interacting with his creation in scripture, as you were bringing up, we see his thoughts, words, actions. There's a unifying principle there where there's, there's unity. And at the, uh, just at, in a plain sense, we can understand that he means what he says. And we, exactly. we aim, aim to grasp the plain sense of his thoughts, words, and actions. Yes. Because you see that, the danger is if he doesn't, then who's going to make up the, uh, who's going to fill the, the lacuna, you know, who's going to make up the difference between um, what work God means and what he actually, uh, what he speaks. And it has to be us. I mean, it has to be us. And uh, the problem is that we're not really qualified to do that because <laughs> uh, a, we don't have the authority to do it and uh, B because we're fallen. Yes. So, uh, you know, yes, there are figures of speech, of course, and uh, we use them all the time, metaphorical terms and expressions that we use all the time. We probably used a bunch already. Uh, just use one there. So, and, and so does God. That's how, you know, that's what gives uh, communication, this vibrancy and this, uh, you know, this multifaceted aspect to it. Yet behind the use of uh, the figures, there is a plain sense which can be uh, understood by all. Hmm. And you describe this as one of the more distinguishing marks of what you're, again, calling biblical covenantalism, that the hermeneutic is derived from scripture itself, that it yeah. is not some outside framework imposed onto scripture, but it is as much as we can getting our grid for understanding scripture mm -hmm. from the scripture. Yeah, because um, I've, of course, you know, I, I can hear already people saying, well, hold on a minute, before you read the Bible, you know, you always, you need to learn how to read and you need to, to know how to put how sentences are put together. And of course, that this is true. There is this aspect of um, this aspect of being able to use language that must be learned. But language itself doesn't come from that. We just mm -hmm. learn it. Uh, all of the of man's uh, explorations into where language came from, how it has developed and so on, have come up fruitless, all of Noam Chomsky's stuff and so on. It, it doesn't go anywhere because it's not based in anything. But 
if we believe what the Bible says, once we've learned our ABCs and we actually can, can read the Peter and Mary books or whatever they are, Peter and Jane books, and we start to read the Bible, we see very clearly and instantly that God is a God who speaks, that um, he has chosen to communicate to us, and that he wants faith from us. Mm. Now, faith in what? It has to be faith in what he says. Mm. And uh, for us to have faith that means anything and that is not a very kind of a up and down thing it has to be based in um the 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 words that that god chooses to address us with so you know that's a that's a simple thing but as far as taking the hermeneutic uh from the bible is concerned you first look at the fact that god means what he says that his thoughts parallel or or rather his actions parallel his thoughts and his words. And then you see how God speaks and relates to man. Mm. And I'm sorry for using, well, I'm not sorry for using the term man, but I'm I'm not politically correct. Wow. Well, you know, I'll have to just edit that out, I guess. Uh, Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Make sure you do that because you don't want to get upset. That's right. um, So this is where the covenants come in, you see. Well, uh, to provide somewhat of a real-time, real-life illustration and contrast, uh, there's been some squabbling among Reformed people on on Twitter. What a surprise. Uh, Reformed people are squabbling. You have the Reformed classic theists who are really fired up about that, squabbling with some Reformed guys who aren't so much into Thomas Aquinas and the others. Yes, well, uh, in conjunction with that whole conversation, Richard Barcelos tweeted this this morning. It's a quote from uh, someone else, Jordan Stefaniak, and I don't know who that is, but he, he shared this quote in, endorsing this thought. And I thought, oh, what, what a great thing to bring up to Dr. Reluctant here and get his thoughts. <laughs> this is the quote. It is unfeasible to derive any theological concept from scripture without a secondary means apart from scripture. What on earth? It is unfeasible to derive any theological concept from scripture without a secondary means apart from scripture. Well, that opens up the whole farm, doesn't it? You yeah, see, that sells the farm does. off. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is, the terminology is del- deliberately open-ended so that you can introduce anything, any control device you want to introduce. Hmm. So that's rubbish. It is. It is. If we're not standing on the word of God, I mean, it it does undermine the doctrine of sola scriptura, which these men, uh, you know, claim to hold dear. It totally undermines uh, that, that doctrine, which is so foundational. That must be, I mean, I'm reading into this a little bit, but only somebody who uh, agreed with Aquinas and classical, the classical approach to uh, theism and apologetics would want to open that door. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I, I wanted to get into rules of affinity, another one of your fun terms uh, as yes. we were on the hermeneutic subject, but we just clearly don't have time for that. I will just suggest to the listener to on YouTube or on the Dr. Reluctant blog, search for rules of affinity and check sure. that out. But let's jump to the, the covenants because you, you did mention that earlier and something that you've said in your articulation of biblical covenantalism is that covenants can be understood as amplifications of plain speech. Mm-hmm. And I imagine this plays a pretty big role in the whole framework. So could you uh, explain what that means, that covenants are amplifications of plain speech? Yes, but I need to, I need to start uh, again in a fairly rudimentary way. You know, like all of these things, um, may, maybe can I insert here, Jeremy, just the, the fact that my doctoral dissertation was on method, theological method. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, a, it's kind of a big 350-page bore. But what it allowed me to do is it allowed me to ask questions about, okay, so how do we formulate systematic theology? How do we back it up? And what, are we, what must we assume? And what do we have a right to assume? And then, uh, you know, how do we allow the Bible to have free play within that, uh, you know, that structure? Mm. And those are fairly big questions. But out of that came uh, a, an understanding that um, in order to talk to man with man's own um, problems with uh with believing his own problems with going his own way and so on uh god because he's gracious and because he has to put up with us uh, has to have a a way of saying this is important pay attention to this um and he does that particularly post-flood he does that with the covenant Now, there are a couple of key questions that must uh, must arise before you even start the investigation. And these questions are never asked. (laughs) They are never asked. The first of them. So, so uh, listener, uh, this is the time to to really pay attention. Okay, so if you're if you're washing the dishes or the kids are talking <laughs> behind you, maybe pause and come back yes. to this later. Really important yes. part. Okay. Oh yes, go. yes. Stop what you're doing. So, <laughs> yes. Stop breathing for a while. <laughs> um, the uh, the first one is why does God make covenants? Because his yes is yes and his no is no. He's God. <laughs> Why on earth should he involve himself in a solemn oath to do something? I mean, if he's, he's God, isn't he? So that's the first question. The second question is, you know, what is the functions? What do covenants do anyway? Why do people make them? I mean, where do they come from? And, uh, you know, what's the purpose of them? So surprisingly enough, people don't ask those questions, not even the scholars who write about covenants. They just kind of take it for granted. Which means we are coming into that conversation with some assumptions and presuppositions. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, um, the thing is that those two questions are absolutely essential to understand uh, the covenants that God makes in the Bible. So if I can answer the first question, the first question is, why does God make covenants? Well, he doesn't make them for himself. 
It's not like uh, he's going to forget to do something he says he's going to do or that, you know, he knows that he has a tendency to, uh, to stray and to, um, to not be faithful. So the only other avenue, therefore, is that he makes them for us. And, of course, Hebrews chapter 6 kind of uh, alludes to this when it speaks about the covenant that he made with Abraham. Uh, God wanted to confirm it with an oath, you know, to make it doubly sure. Um, so, so God, therefore, makes them with us. What's the problem or what's the issue with making a covenant with us? Why do we need, why do we need them? Well, obviously, we need them. Covenants are solemn bonds and agreements over clearly identifiable terms, by the way, which is also never discussed. Mm. They're hermeneutical in nature. And um, <clears throat> you enter into this solemn bond and oath, either unilaterally in the sense of uh, a God with most of the covenants or um, bilaterally with, say, the Mosaic Covenant, where Israel also took the oath. Um, and you un both sides understand what is at stake. And it's usually a really big issue that's at stake, something that's very important. Mm -hmm. So why does God do that? Why, why does he not just demand that we, uh, we believe him? Well, it's, a, it's, again, it's an issue of God's grace. It's an extension of his um, bowing down to us, uh, not of course, frustrating himself, but uh, bowing low to us. Condescending. Uh, yes. Because of our limitations, because of our sin. So therefore, uh, because of our tendency not to listen to God, and this runs into the issue of independence, which I'll talk about in a second, if you'll allow me. Um, we have a tendency to think independently of what God says. We'll take what he says and then we'll run away with it and we'll devise something of our own concoction with it. And then we'll come back and look for biblical texts mm -hmm. which support it. Okay. Which is the wrong thing to do. Uh, so he makes covenants, which are basically God shouting at us saying, pay attention to this. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm swearing I'm going to do, and so it's going to happen. And we're supposed to take that, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, its several aspects, uh, the Mosaic covenant, of course, it, it is bilateral, but, but God still is gracious enough to keep on with it, mm -hmm. even though Israel broke their side of it. Um, it is temporary because of that weakness so it's going to be replaced by the new covenant uh then the priestly covenant that people forget about the one with phineas and the davidic covenant so these these covenants god means what he says in these things and they are major structural uh aspects of the whole ongoing teleology or purpose of god mm -hmm. in creation and so because they are so hermeneutically and purposely structural to what God intends to do, and because God is saying, pay attention, listen to this, this is what I am 
swearing an oath to do, that means nothing else in the Bible can contradict those things. We can't, uh, we can't bring something in and say, oh, well, for example, all of the, all of the promises now to Israel, which are included in God's own oaths, are now all of a sudden transmogrified by our interpretation of the New Testament and our application of them to the church. You see, that won't do. You can't do that because it cuts across what God has sworn to do in his oath. And, and one of the things that I've always found very difficult in that Reformed view of the Old Testament covenants is that you really have just a, a couple of options. Uh, one is that God didn't want them to understand what he was actually saying, where you know he was talking about the church all along or however they would want to phrase it, and that he just didn't want them to understand because there would have been no way for them to understand. Or two, God was intentionally just deceiving them. <laughs> and, and, and I don't really like either one of those options. One is that God was inserting hidden meanings willfully, and that was part of the plan. Or two, he wanted them to, he just wanted them to be uh, uh, totally deceived. Yes. And I don't really know of a, of a noble option. Uh, when you no, but the view. problem is, you see, even though you have to boil it down to those two, uh, those two options, when you, when you put those two options to people that hold that point of view, they will say, no, you don't understand. Um, and it's rather like dealing with, say, an atheist. Um, Ooh, they're not going to like this uh, analogy. This, I, well, you know, I, I'm going to get into why this is, okay, because we all do it. Um, so when you're dealing with an atheist, you put to him that, uh, let's make it really, really basic, that um, they believe in such unscientific nonsense as the eternity of matter. Um, if they don't believe in the eternity of matter, then of course, then matter, how does matter get going? It's created out of nothing, but nothing is created out of nothing. Uh, and they will say, as, as you start reasoning in this way, you know, life comes from non-life, you believe that, and so on. They will say, no, they want to jump in, you see, once the thing gets going, once it's running. And that's what uh, people, good men, maybe more godly than I am, but, but they, they want to jump in while the, the vehicle is running. They don't want to get the vehicle running. But, mm -hmm. of course, I think that we have to uh, understand how the vehicle gets going in order to know where we're going. Um, and that makes, that means you have to keep bringing them back to this, even though they don't want to be brought back to it. And by the way, we all do this. And the reason for that is that we're all independent. We're all Eve before the tree. And, you know, she will agree with God that the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is, uh, you know, it's, uh, Good for the eyes, good to the eyes, and um, you know it's uh, what, what's the other one? Um, forgive me. Oh, three eight, three six. Uh, so when when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, there we are. That that agrees with what God says in chapter two. 
that it was pleasant to the eyes. That agrees with the assessment in chapter two. And a tree desirable to make one wise. That disagrees with what God has. God didn't say anything about that. Mm. And the thing is, why is she coming to that conclusion? She's come to the conclusion because she's uh, she's actually assessing the tree independently of, the, of what God said about the tree. Mm. And so she can agree with God on stuff. That's not the issue. Agreeing with God on things is is not the issue. The issue is whether we are doing it independently of God, whether we are independent appraisers, you see. If we're independent of God, Satan's got us where he wants us, just as he got Eve where he wanted her. Mm. And unfortunately, even though I I don't know how this is passed on, and this is I I I don't think scripture answers this question, but we're all there. We're all Eve before the tree, and, and the the new birth doesn't change that. We all have this tendency to think independently of God. And of course we know this because this is why we find faith and exercising faith and depending on God so hard. This is why we have to be dragged back all the time to what the word says. Um, So uh, because of this this, uh, problem that, that we all have, the problem that the atheist has in wanting to avoid those basic questions which destroy his position at the outset uh certain christians because they've chosen the wrong way of powering the vehicle as it were don't want to answer the question okay so what have you put in the vehicle how's this thing running um those two points that you've brought up they want to avoid but you can't avoid them once we once we actually address them, we're addressing the initial questions of the system, and we're asking if the system can actually get off the ground, and whether, you know, to change the analogy again, uh, whether the vehicle can actually get going. 